listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Celia Hayes, who is a senior research fellow in theoretical life sciences and a professor of psychology at All Souls College at Oxford, and also the author of a book that I have right here called Cognitive Gadgets, The Cultural Evolution of Thinking. Welcome, Celia. Thank you, Greg. Good to be here. Now, this debate between nature and culture, sometimes called the nomos physics debate back in the day, right, has been going on since the, at least the pre-Socratics. And some people have argued that we should just stop this whole debate and uh, get rid of it because the boundary is so blurry. But you argue that these concepts do make sense because it's really all about how information gets transmitted. So is information transmitted through the hardware, which is the genetics, or is it transmitted through what we might think of as the software, right, or through cultural learning. And you come out quite forcefully in arguing that this boundary is maybe should be placed a little bit differently than it's been placed by folks in evolutionary psychology and and cultural evolution. And I guess if if I were to to summarize your argument, I think everyone agrees that there are certain things that uh, are part of the hardware and everyone agrees that there might be certain things that belong to the apps, but it's this kind of operating system that we kind of get into arguments about. And I guess the evolutionary psychologists would argue that the operating system is something that's optimized for our our hardware and that we have these kind of inherited modules in the brain, which give rise to these ways of thinking. And I think you're arguing that a lot of that is, much more of that is is learned through cultural transmission than we might think if we take this evolutionary psychology perspective. I hope that's a, a decent summary of at least how I interpreted your argument. And if it's true, it's actually very profound and it has uh, some fascinating implications, I think, for teaching, for learning, for education, etc. Yeah, you gave a very good summary indeed. I think everybody agrees that nearly everything human is a mixture of both. There's, as it were, genetic inputs and there's cultural inputs. The question is about where the dividing line lies. Traditional evolutionary psychologists are inclined to say that all the special thinking that humans are capable of, the thinking that we do, which is either completely absent in other animals or is only there in some kind of trace form, thinking about what is allowed or permitted or required, some kind of moral or normative thinking. Evolutionary psychologists suppose that most of that evolved in the human line in the Pleistocene era, and that now every human newborn baby has a kind of a program that they inherit with their genes, a program for the development of that kind of thought. And I started out soaking that up. But then I started to take a very close look at the data. And it just seemed to me that it didn't square up. I started with one particular kind of distinctively human thinking. The thinking which enables us to copy the body movements of others. You see a little bit of body movement copy in other animals. 
But curiously enough, other apes do not reliably ape, as we say in ordinary life. And the more I looked at the evidence on imitation, the less this looked like something which we inherit with our genes, the more it looked like something which we develop as a result of interaction with other people, originally parents, subsequently peers, and so on, in the course of our childhood. So my suggestion is that what is socially learned or socially transmitted is tremendously important and that it plays a shaping role. So I think you mentioned that the nature culture debate goes back a very long way. I think the new dimension in the last few decades is based on the insight that you can have a Darwinian evolutionary process which is operating on variants, possibilities, which are socially rather than genetically inherited. Whereas it used to be that evolution was on the nature side and, as it were, social thought was on the culture side, you've now got evolution on both sides. So this cultural evolutionary approach is one where presumably we need to define the units of analysis, right? And sometimes these are maybe routines or maybe they're sometimes called memes, maybe they're they're ideas, maybe they're beliefs. And presumably the ones that help us in some way are the ones that survive. Although there are I guess there's, a, there's an alternative theory that whatever helps them to survive, and that may or may not benefit the, the host, right? The believer or the transmitter of this belief. To what extent can we map over the ideas of Darwinian evolution onto culture? Do we need to map it one for one? Do we need to have kind of variety and selection and fidelity? Or is it more kind of metaphorical? I think you identified exactly the elements that we need to be able to map over a source of variant forces that provide selection, which mean that some variants survive and continue down the generations better than others. We don't have to be able to map over things like the genotype-phenotype distinction. In the genetic domain, you can distinguish very clearly between the DNA sequence and the feature of an animal plant that it contributes to building, the phenotype. I don't think there is anything like such clear-cut a distinction in the cultural domain. You could say, well, okay, brain hardware or software is some kind of analog of the genotypes, analog of the DNA sequences, and what people do is the analog of the phenotype. But I think people tend to tie themselves in knots when they try to do that detailed mapping. After all, would it really expect to find all elements? An alternative perspective on this is to say that Darwin happened to be the first person to articulate an incredibly powerful means of achieving a fit between a system and the environment in which it's operating. And it happened that his interest was the fit between biological organisms and the environments in which they live. Later on, you had people like, there was a psychologist called Thorndike who was interested in how learning fits the individual for the world in which that individual lives. He came up with something called the law of effect, 
which is essentially a Darwinian algorithm for achieving adaptation. We shouldn't be enslaved by the fact that Darwin was interested in biological form and adaptation. That domain will have certain features that you won't find in other domains where the variation and selective retention heuristic, the Darwinian heuristic, also does some pretty incredible things in fitting systems to their environment. But when we're talking about cultural transmission, this is a subset of learning, right? There are all sorts of creatures that are capable of learning, right? Learning isn't something that's unique to humans. We've seen examples of crows and ravens figuring out how to get worms out of little buckets or whatever, right? So they're learning through trial and error. And we even have examples of social learning in animals. Famously, actually, in my behavioral finance class, which I'm teaching later tonight, I talk about rats and how rats can figure out what to eat. If they see a rat that's, you know, looks pretty healthy, <laughs> they eat what that, that rat's eating. And they see a rat that's not so healthy, they, they don't eat what that rat is eating. So it seems like social learning is also something that exists in other animals. So how do we distinguish cultural learning from social learning? You're absolutely right that social learning is you know, ubiquitous in the animal kingdom. Cultural learning, there's no hard and fast definition, but there seem to be some forms of social learning that you find pretty much only in humans, traces of them in chimpanzees or in other animals but nothing like the full-blown version that you see in humans. Imitation that I mentioned before is one such example. Lots of things get called imitation. When I say imitation, the capacity to copy the way in which parts of the body move relative to one another. And this turns out to be a surprisingly significant cognitive challenge. I mean, if you think about, say, you look at me raising an eyebrow, and then in imitation of me, you raise an eyebrow. Now, how did you do that? Because when you raise an eyebrow, you're not seeing anything remotely like what you see when you look at me raising an eyebrow. You might get a little extra light into one of your eyes, but what you're actually seeing with that eye is the scene in front of you. You're not seeing a rounded shape with an arc on top, which is going up, which is what you see. So how your cognitive system knows that what you're doing is equivalent from a third-party perspective to what I'm doing is a bit of a mystery, or was until recently a bit of a mystery. So that's one kind of cultural learning, which seems to be fairly distinctively human. Theory of mind, as it's sometimes called, or the ascription of mental states to others, is another fairly distinctively human kind of cultural learning which is important in teaching. A teacher, ideally, or they wouldn't get very far, a human teacher, if they could not think about what it is that the pupil or the student knows and what they don't know, and whether the teacher's efforts are moving them in the direction of giving the student the knowledge that they want the student to have. Now, all of that would be theory of mind or mind reading. And these forms of distinctively human social learning look like they depend on special software. They don't depend on the same software that snails use to find food by following the slime trail of another snail. They seem to, be, to depend on special software, and they seem to do the job of cultural transmission. 
more effectively than the kinds of social learning that you find in other animals. They allow for greater fidelity of transmission. And of course, it helps as a teacher to be able to see your pupils and see if they're, they look confused and are struggling, right? So that theory of mind is, is one that can be very tangible. But I think for an evolutionary psychologist, they would say, okay, these things like a capacity for language or a capacity for mind reading or a capacity for imitation, these are hardwired abilities that we have genetically the capacity and we have specialized capabilities very much i think you use the example of lactose tolerance right where there's a gene culture coevolution where the presumably the earliest people who are able to tolerate milk had a survival advantage and so harvesting milk and and then the more milk you harvested bigger the advantage that people would get from this genetic mutation. And so the genetic mutation would diffuse through the population. So why can't we think about there being like a language gene or a mind reading gene, the way we have lactose tolerance gene and have some one-to-one matching between some genetic markers and some module in the brain that gives us these capabilities. And I guess the, the corollary to that would then be that you can't learn to be lactose tolerant, right? You know, you either have it or you don't have it. And mind reading and the capacity for language would presumably also be something that you either have it or you don't have it to some degree or, or other. Yes, if it could be, it could be that we have genes for mind reading. There's no engineering obstacle to that. It's just that the evidence doesn't stack up that way. One sign you might expect to see if we genetically inherit a capacity to read minds is it might appear very early in development. It might be that even infants are capable of doing it. Mm -hmm. And there is, people have put forward evidence suggesting that kids at 10 months of age are able to ascribe false beliefs to other people. Their looking patterns, of course, a 10-month-old can't say anything to you at all, but that when somebody the infant is looking at would be said by an adult to have a false belief about the location of a toy, then a 10-month-old infant will look really hard if that adult then behaves in a way which an adult would say means that they know exactly where the toy was. So these patterns of looking time indicating surprise on the part of infants have been claimed to show that infants as young as 10 months understand false belief, have a capacity to read minds or have theory of mind. But I go into the details of these things. And when I went into the details of those studies, every single one of them and looked at their methodology, there is an equally simple explanation which assumes that the infants are using very ordinary cognitive capabilities to generate these peculiar looking behaviors, the kinds of cognitive software that we have in common with a wide range of other animals. So that's the evidence which is put forward for genes for mind reading doesn't really stand up. And then on the other hand, you have fascinating work, which is looking at the development of mind reading from about two to five years of age and showing that it's really tightly locked to the kinds of interactions 
that kids have with their caregivers. So if you, for example, sit down a parent and their child with a picture book and you record how often the parent mentions mental states when they're looking at the pictures with the child, mentions happiness, sadness, anger, and so on. Also, when they make what's known as causal explanatory statements, they say things like, oh, the little boy is crying because he's sad. He's sad because he lost his dog. The frequency with which parents say those kinds of things is a direct predictor of the development in their child of theory of mind, how well they will perform standardized tests of theory of mind. So there's weak evidence in favor in our genes thesis, and there's rich and I think persuasive evidence in favor of the capacity to conceive of others having mental states being something that we learn from others as we grow up. Yeah, so sometimes I think people equate things that are cultural with things that you know, vary across populations and things that are genetic as things that are constant across populations. And so when you study people in a variety of cultures, they all seem to develop kind of theory of mind within a similar kind of age range. And we might think, oh, this can't be cultural. We're not looking at kids that don't have culture, right? <laughs> like they're not in the data set. If they were, and you have some interesting examples like Nicaraguan sign language. I mean, there are a couple weird cases where people aren't exposed to culture, right? There may be variations in certain vocabulary across languages, but it's hard to find somebody who doesn't have some language as long as they've been part of a, of a culture since birth. So the thing that I found really fascinating about your argument is that you liken so many of these things that we think as natural to language itself. And I think it's clear that if an infant was raised in the absence of language, it would not have language. But it's harder for us to imagine that if an infant was raised without some scaffolded learning in mind reading, that they would not achieve the kind of mind reading that we take for granted. And I found that to be a very compelling argument. I talked to Sarah Hurdy, and she spent a lot of time talking about how children come in, certainly with what you call a starter kit, but then there's this education which begins almost instantly between mother and child, where the child learns the basics of how to function in society. I'm glad you find the mind reading case that I make persuasive. I have had the contrasting response, which is, look, mind reading is easy and effortless. I can hardly resist it. I can hardly resist ascribing mental states to my car, let alone to other people, how could this possibly be something which is slowly learned in the course of development through interaction with other people? And I share that intuition that mind reading is easy once you've got it. But I think that's also true with script reading, reading books, reading text. Once you've got it, it's pretty well effortless. Present somebody a word in a language that they have, they speak, and they can't resist reading it. Even if it's sort of to their cost to read it, it interferes with what they're doing to read this word. We just can't resist doing it. We have to do it. It becomes automatic. If I see a scrap of paper on the ground, I can't help but read whatever is written on that scrap of paper. Absolutely. And there's a, an old chestnut in experimental psychology called the Stroop effect, 
which demonstrates that you're given the task of reading. You have a number of words, each of them printed in a different color. You're supposed to name the color of the ink in which they're printed. But if you've got a word like red printed in green ink, you're supposed to say green, but the fact that the word says red slows you down and, and produces errors and so on. So reading word. I have my students do that in English and then in Chinese, and they, they do it very easily in Chinese, <laughs> yeah, unless they're Chinese. You might yeah. have some interesting classes. Yeah, but obviously, in the case of literacy, we know that we don't have genes for literacy. Literacy only emerged about five or 6,000 years ago. That's not enough time for genetic evolution to have given us special processes for reading print. So it's clear that the effortlessness of performing a cognitive function in adulthood is no guide to how hard you had to work to learn this in the course of your childhood. Yeah. And so another example of this is imitation, right? And I found it very compelling that when you argued imitation is itself a, a skill that requires learning. And I think it's, we see differences in people's ability to imitate dancers and athletes. I mean, I can't claim that I'm a good dancer, but you see these people where someone will just do a move and if you're a an experienced dancer, you only need to see that move once and then you can do it. Or if you're a professional athlete, a coach can say, hey, don't do this, do that. And the athlete will almost immediately grasp what is asked of them and they can do it. So, you know, and that can be learned, presumably, right? If you, as you become an athlete and you spend more time as an athlete or spend more time as a dancer, then you can learn how to imitate better. So it is very much like reading where you get more proficient over time. And, and then when you try to learn a new language, you start off very poorly, but then make progress over time. Absolutely right. And I think the learning in the case of imitation comes from various sorts of techniques that athletes and dancers use. I mean, dancers in particular, those wall mirrors, which are very often in dance studios, mean that every move you make in that room, you feel yourself doing it, as it were, you've got the internal feedback from the performance. You can feel the muscles stretching and so on. And that is being correlated with the sight of yourself doing it from the outside. And it's that kind of experience, that kind of sensory motor correlation, which is building your capacity to imitate. If in fact there's this can be learned over time, then that means that sometimes there's going to be people that, that don't learn this. And so I was interested in your take on early childhood development. It is, I think, harder. I think you discussed this. I, I find it harder to learn a, a language, you know, a second language. But cognitive gadgets presumably are laid down fairly early in, in life. And I talked to Dan Willingham, who, who he writes on reading and learning how to read. And he says that the wrong way to teach someone how to read is to just tell them to imitate a good reader. Instead, you say, start by imitating you know, a bad reader, and then we work our way up through this scaffolding. And I think you, you talked a bit about how that's how these things, like whether it's imitation or mind reading, is learned. So you mentioned that a mother will spend more time talking about wants and emotions relatively early in the developmental process and then transition to talking about kind of thoughts and, and ideas later. That sequence allows for kind of optimal learning. 
Are there situations where people are deprived of this scaffolding relatively early in life? And can we attribute kind of variation in people's ability to engage in mind reading to their education or their upbringing? I think certainly to their interactions with caregivers. So there is some evidence that people who, when they were infants, their mothers were depressed, show a weaker capacity to imitate facial expressions and so on. A depressed person is less emotionally reactive to others. So whereas typically parents will mirror the facial expressions of their infant. Inadvertently, they're giving the infant the opportunity to see what they, the infant, look like when they do something that feels like this. And that's the capacity which is crucial for imitation. You've got to be able to map the feel onto the sight. And a parent mirroring back facial expressions is crucial to learning that. And depressed mothers quite understandably, doing less of that mirroring. I think that this is a really important point because quite a few people portray the child as a little scientist. So they are acknowledging that there's an awful lot of learning involved in assembling typically human mental software, but they portray the learning as very actively done by the child in a quite independent sort of way. Self-directed, kind of self-directed experimentation. Absolutely. It's like there, there's a whole social world out there and the child's task is to learn how it works. And yes, there's formal education where the members of society will try to help out the child. But mostly the task is one they've got, the social world is what they've got to learn about. Whereas my kind of cultural evolutionary perspective is very much one saying, yeah, it's what they've got to learn about, but also it's a world that helps them to learn, which has involved every step of the way in enabling them to learn. It's an interaction. It's not the child scientist doing it all by themselves. So we've all heard about how children who are exposed to more words and speaking, right, from their parents and caregivers will ultimately become more fluent in languages or have more conceptual richness later in life. I don't know if those studies are, have been have held up, but th that seems to be the, the conventional wisdom. Presumably, th there would be parallels in these other kind of gadgets, right? Where if you are exposed to more emotional richness through facial expressions, then you wind up with maybe more emotional in intelligence later in life. And if you are... I don't know, provided with more opportunities for imitation, right? Then you would presumably become a better imitator as you grow up. Would it be fair to kind of make those parallels? It would be exactly the kind of prediction that my theory would make. There's surprisingly little research testing those kinds of predictions. I think it, it's long been acknowledged that early experience contributes to cognitive development. But people have tended to look, they haven't tried to partial out the effect of particular kinds of experience. So um, actually, I was reading a, a paper yesterday, which was looking at the influence of vocabulary on the development of the capacity to understand emotion. 
to understand what causes various emotions and the kinds of things people tend to do when they're in certain emotional states and so on. And there's a rich history of research showing that general vocabulary predicts how good a child is at emotional understanding. But this was the first study which was trying to separate out emotion-specific vocabulary from general vocabulary. And the study was indeed showing, as I and you would predict, that it was the emotion-specific vocabulary which was enhancing the development of emotion understanding quite separately from general vocabulary. But we need a lot more work of that kind. And so I think you spent a big chunk of the book talking about language. And of course, this is not your field, but coming in from outside of the field, I think you make some observations, which perhaps people who are deep in, in the field might not have made. So the whole Chomsky school of language is emphasizing kind of commonalities across languages. You highlight that there's quite a bit of difference across languages, but also that there's also quite a bit of difference among our kind of cultural gadgets in terms of mind reading. People's mind reading abilities vary across, across cultures. So how does this, if there's variety in this way, is, is the variety functional in any way? Would it make more sense to have a different kind of theory of mind in, in one type of culture versus another type of culture? Or perhaps would having better mind reading be more valuable in certain environments than other environments? Can we explain this heterogeneity in some functional way? I, I think we can. I think you would need an anthropologist to offer a kind of a grand theory here. But something, a specific case, we Westerners are rabid scribers of mental states to others in comparison with a lot of other cultures. There are cultures where they very rarely invoke somebody's thoughts and feelings, beliefs and desires as an explanation for their behavior. Instead, they appeal to the individual's position in a certain social hierarchy and the circumstances in which that person finds themselves now and those factors triangulate on why this person has done this thing now or what they will do in the future. Whereas we are full of ascriptions of what people, you know, want and how this might differ from other individuals. It's a function of their character and they want this now because they're going to get something else later and so on. And that looks awfully like something which has co-evolved with capitalism. It's a kind of a, a rabid individualism. It, it's much less concerned with social solidarity, with the group and its demands on behavior and on the mind and so on, than what you see in, in various other cultures. A theme that I think Joe Henrik has developed wonderfully well is how eccentric our own culture is relative to many others. And I think that's especially true when it comes to how we predict the behavior of others. See, that's even an example. We tend to call it theory of mind or mind reading wherever in the world we find it. In fact, mind reading or theory of mind is our way of predicting behavior. Other cultures have ways of predicting and explaining each other's behavior, which depend much less on the ascription of thoughts and feelings. 
Right. So I was talking to Greg Clark, who's an economic historian. His thesis is that the discount rate is something, the discount rate that people have, in other words, they're the trade-off that they make between current and future satisfaction, right? Which you could think of as, I don't know, PFC activation, right? This is something which is a cultural trait that is transmitted, right? Both maybe vertically, horizontally, obliquely, right? It's not clear exactly how it gets transmitted, but it, it is something which is, is transmitted culturally and in an environment where you have stable property rights and predictable returns on investments, it would make a whole lot of sense for you to have a lower discount rate, but that trait would not do you well in in a more unpredictable environment. That sounds exactly right to me. And so if I was designing a system and I was trying to make it as adaptive as possible, I would have kind of differential speed of, of adaption for different types of routines. Certain things don't change Rapidly, certain things change rapidly, and it, it seems like culture is is able to respond much more quickly to changes in the environment than some kind of programming. But what determines kind of the speed? When you think in terms of evolution, there's genes for all sorts of things, but there's no gene, as far as I know, for mutation rate or for increasing or decreasing the, the variety within the gene pool. Is there a mechanism that causes us to accelerate the cultural evolution or kind of slow down cultural evolution? I think we can, we can convert cultural evolution in the sense of a Darwinian selection process operating on socially inherited variants. We can convert that into what you could describe as an intentional cultural evolutionary process. My hobby horse, one where the first I would push to the front of the queue for doing this would be metacognition. I've been deeply affected by recent evidence that people who have extreme political and religious views, in the political case and left, tend to have weak metacognitive sensitivity. So if you give them a simple task, like over and over again, you present them on the computer screen with two lines and the lines are either parallel or one of them is slightly tilted relative to the other. And they get a quick look at this and their primary job is to say, in this case, were they parallel or were they not? And then once they're given that answer, they're asked, how sure are you about that kind of on a a one to 10 or a one to a hundred scale? And on that kind of toy task, people with extreme political and religious views are showing a weaker mapping between their confidence judgments and their true accuracy than other people are. Now, we don't know what's the direction of causality there. It could be that people who, for one reason or another, have weak metacognition are vulnerable to extreme messages. It could be that exposure to extremist views and ways of thinking weakens metacognition in a general way. But there's evidence that metacognitive capacity is itself something which is culturally evolved in the sense of a Darwinian selection process operating on socially inherited variants. But what we could, as a society, choose to do is to take it out of the hand of the selection process and put it into the education system, actually train up people's metacognitive sensitivity. And that would speed things up enormously. In a way, it would make it an entirely different kind of evolution 
You would take it from a selection mechanism to an intentional mechanism. So we could change the speed deliberately. And uh, both of us are in the education business, and that's sort of why I was asking you, right, when I talk to business executives, right, oftentimes they are operating within an organization where the people who work in the organization have cultural ways of looking at the world. They have ways of thinking that the leaders are trying to disrupt or to change. And oftentimes they, they find it very difficult. In your piece on imitation and the part on imitation, you had some you know wonderful thought-provoking ideas. I mentioned the, the rats, right? So the rats will imitate the healthy rat and not imitate the sickly rat. And that's pretty much the rule that rats have been using, right, since, you know, the beginning of time. But humans, we have a little more flexibility, right? May have been at one point imitate the old people because they must know what they're doing. And now it's like, let's imitate the young people because they must know what they're doing. And so, although we have this starter kit that kind of says, hey, you know, imitation is something you're capable of doing, where we direct our imitation, that's something that is is learned. But in some cultures, the norm is very difficult to dislodge. And in others, it's, it seems to be more free-floating. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I used to be a chef and I still love to cook. And when you go to Italy, you know, they have these recipes that they've had for hundreds of years, like Amatriciana. And oh my gosh, if you put parsley in the Amatriciana, they're going to kick you out of Italy. You can't do that. <laughs> but in America, it's like, all right, well, you can put cheese whiz in your Amatriciana <laughs> and nobody cares, right? So I think there was actually a, I think there was a piece in, there was, in England, there was a big controversy <laughs> over this just recently in the papers about, I think it was one of these famous English chefs that bastardized Amatriciana and got in trouble. But so I guess the question is, why do some environments seem to be uh, much more flexible in terms of the norms and rules under which they're operating and others are more frictionful and less likely to evolve? There's work by Michelle Gelfand on this. She's comparing states, countries. Some countries seem to have much stricter norms than others. And she relates it, among other things, to the amount of threat that people are under. When they're under threat, then they t their norms tend to get tighter. Now, for an organization, it's not clear they might want some norms to be tighter and others to be weaker. If the organization's in a phase where the important thing is to innovate, then they probably want to do something which will make people feel free, as it were, to come forward with novel ideas to generate variance in the evolutionary process. If they feel that there's too much blue sky thinking and there's not enough careful selection, evaluation of which of these ideas is better than others, then they might want to tighten up the norms of, for example, what counts as a persuasive argument. I do remember a case where we had in uh, the university department where I worked, I will name no name, the kind of weekly seminar where everybody came together to listen to a speaker, the discussion period had just fallen apart. All kinds of people would speak. Everyone felt very free to speak. And a lot of what they said was genuinely nonsense. And it was like none of the elders of the tribe were delivering any smacks for this. You never had an elder who would subsequently 
speak up and say, I see Jones's point. But in fact, if they reflect on the following, they'll realize that could possibly be true. Then we got one new professor who was a very smart guy and pretty uninhibited in delivering that kind of smack, which signaled that wasn't a good idea. And you'd have to come up with a much better argument than that to make this a worthwhile idea for the group to consider. So I think those are, are two different ways in which an organization could try and speed up the evolution, more variance or better selection of the variance. And the latter, I think, amounts to, in a sense, a tightening of norms by credible figures. And so if we were to adopt the kind of research paradigm that you're proposing, what would that look like? I mean, would we take the techniques that we are currently using to explore the variety and, and transmission of these smaller bits of culture and kind of move it a little bit further up to more primary systems or processes that you call gadgets? Should we start thinking about these, I guess, metacognitive ways of interacting with the world as themselves some type of tool? When I think of cultural evolution, folks, they talk about how axes evolved over time. You see the axe acquired a shape and then it became sharper and, and that sort of thing. And you're actually saying that if we take that same way of interpreting the change in the, the acts, we can apply that to the change in the way we interact with other humans on a cultural level. Is that a fair way to describe this research agenda? That's certainly an important aspect of it. And one that I personally haven't pursued. In a way, what you need for that is anthropology, intellectual history, other aspects of history. I know that there's active work in the study of classics, which is looking at the understanding of emotions and the mind in the ancient world and how that has contributed to the way in which people in the West now think about the mind in the Western world and the kind of twists and turns of that in the medieval period. And I think that's a fascinating aspect of cultural evolutionary psychology that I personally am not equipped to pursue. But I think taking it into cognitive science, most cognitive scientists now treat, as it were, human software. They don't ask about its origins at all. They might want to take more interest in what its origins are, the extent to which it is based on cultural learning and so on. But the biggest change would be for the people who identify themselves as evolutionary psychologists. And the typical research strategy there has been to say, if capacity X evolved in our Stone Age ancestors to fit them to their small group hunting and foraging world, then you would expect to see modern humans showing certain biases. And they go out there and get some evidence, and they often find that we do indeed show those biases. And they say, there, there we are. We vindicate the whole idea that this is in the genes and it evolved in the Stone Age. But in fact, of course, we need a contrastive mode of testing, the healthy way in most sciences. You set up one theory against an alternative, and you try to plan some observations or design an experiment 
which will work out which of those is closer to the truth. And one of the observations which gave a lot of initial strength to evolutionary psychology was that people are really good at certain logic problems when their task is not to solve a problem with X's and Y's and P's and Q's, but when they're given the task of spotting somebody who's cheating on a social contract. Right. So we've got the cheater detection module. The cheater detection module. And, you know, there's the strategy. We predict people will be especially good at this when they're detecting cheaters. Go out, fight. That's indeed the truth. But then, of course, it turns out that we have lots of practice at detecting cheaters. So the next thing you need to do is to work out whether we're especially good at that because we've had lots of practice or because it's in our genes to be good at that. And that kind of strategy has not been used in evolutionary psychology. So I think that's my strongest hope that those who are interested in the evolutionary origins of the human mind, and I think it has many practical implications, but those who want to find out about it start doing contrastive testing, looking at the extent to which it's cultural evolution and genetic evolution, which has done the designing of the human mind. Yeah, certainly a big part of the literature I'm familiar with and which I incorporated in my teaching is around this mismatch theory that we have Stone Age brains in a, in a modern world and that's why we're losing all our money on Robin Hood and getting scammed left and right and eating all sorts of food that, that's bad for us and so forth. But I think you're a little bit more on the plasticity side. I think for better or worse, you, you believe that we can change the things that we do and the way we think, even at a very fundamental level. And so I think at the end of the book, you said we should not be too concerned about these radical changes in our environment because we will be able to adapt to them and change how we respond to them. But I think some people would argue that maybe that responsiveness comes at a price, right? So if we think about mind reading, if mind reading is a skill, we can lose that skill. And, and if kids are spending all their time on uh, maybe not Instagram, but maybe if they're spending all their time texting instead of interacting face-to-face, -face, or maybe even if they're interacting with people wearing masks all the time, then they may not develop the theory of mind that their parents take for granted. And I certainly hear from a lot of parents bemoaning the fact that their kids are growing up to be semi-autistic and that this is determined by environment. They certainly not genetically, there's no genetic adaptation that's happened since, you know, 2007 and the invention of the iPhone. So is this greater plasticity something that we should feel fairly good about if we put in place the right educational environment? Or is it something that maybe we should also be a little concerned about? Yes, I think that the plasticity means that our minds collectively are relatively agile, but also fragile. That's the way I tend to see about it. So it creates opportunities. We can, with the right education programs, with the right advice to parents, we can produce big positive changes in the way that people think and how well they think, but also particularly the, the modes of thought. But of course, the, the downside is that if our capacity, for example, to read minds or to imitate was in our genes, then 
you know, each child when it's born is has that potential just waiting to unfold. And it would unfold in a broad range of environments. Whereas on the, the cultural evolutionary view, that's not so. It absolutely depends on certain kinds of parental support from the education system, support from the broader society. So in a way, it gives us all much more responsibility for ensuring that the good ways of thinking roll on into the future and ideally get amplified, and that the bad ways of thinking are inhibited or limited. It gives us a great deal of opportunity, but also onerous responsibility. But it also means that there is no inherently good or bad way of thinking, that it's really depending on the environment. I recall when I was teaching in, in an underdeveloped country, as they sometimes call it, and I was using an example, a standard example from economics, where I said, okay, so you've got two horses versus four horses, and I was trying to make some point about marginal benefit, <laughs> marginal cost. And of course, the folks in the audience, they, they really wanted to know what, what color the horses were. And I tried to convince them that it was irrelevant for the purposes of this example, but they refused to give up that. <laughs> they're like, no, no, it really does matter what color the horse is. And I said, just suppose they're all the same color. Well, they're never the same color. They're all, so, and I thought this explains why we see IQs going up with industrialization. It, it doesn't mean that people are smarter, but that they have a way of thinking that's more adapted to this capitalist economy where they need to be able to think in, in terms of, of abstractions to succeed in education and in life. But it's certainly not a better way of, of thinking. It may be a way that doesn't work well in that country. I agree with that. I mean, that the primary metric is the degree of fit between the way in which the members of a society think and the demands of their day-to-day -day lives. Does this promote human thriving in that society or does it not? That's the metric of the right way to think, as it were. But I wouldn't want to stop at that, I don't think. I think it is possible that something like normative thinking, thinking about value and about right and wrong, which I see as a cognitive gadget, an achievement of cultural evolution operating in humans. I think that kind of thinking could reveal truths about the right way to act, the right way to think. And that would not be incompatible with the cultural evolutionary story. It might be that some of the gadgets which have been produced can get at a kind of a transcendent truth. I don't think there's anything, there's no conflict there. Well, Celia, this has been fascinating. The book is called Cognitive Gadgets, the Cultural evolution of thinking. It's very provocative. There's ideas on almost every page that pop right out of the text and will cause you to think and reflect for uh, a long time afterwards. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Greg. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.